0: <laughs> it happens. It happens. It's all good. Awkward, awkward silence, you know? It's okay. It's okay every minute. Every once in a while. It's healthy. It's healthy. It's, it's all good. Well, welcome this morning. If I didn't officially greet you in person, I'm sorry I tried um, on your way in, but uh, God is, is so good. I uh, don't know, you know where you're at, what, what's going on in your life, but just a reminder of what we are doing you know, as a church, as we're studying, uh, we are on a, a journey through the entire book of Luke, and we've done so in a different manner. Where we we started by just looking at the birth of Jesus. Luke is the most famous place for the birth of Jesus, and then we talked about his and, and his cousin, potentially John the Baptist, and their upbringing and their their beginnings into ministry. And then we took a deep dive into all the miracles of Jesus throughout the entire book of Luke. And we so we just separated those out and looked at them. And now we're going back and we're looking at all of the teachings of Jesus in light of those miracles that he performed along the way. The miracles sure attracted the people. They saw it and they were they were engaged, but now he wanted to teach them time and time again. And so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12 and we'll be beginning in verse 1. Okay, Luke chapter 12 verse 1. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands gathered, So that they were trampling on one another. I want to pause there just for a moment. And I want you to just envision that. Thousands of people gathered, Luke tells us. So much so that the the people were, were so packed in and trying to get around that they were trampling upon one another. So as you look around today, just notice that's okay. If we're trampling on one another. As a matter of fact... I know many of you have been to a place called um, Disney World or King's Island or Holiday World or Cedar Point, my favorite place on earth, um, and you have stood in line for upwards of two hours. So an hour in here wouldn't be that bad, would it? Consider. Think about it. Just think about the sacrifices we're willing to make here. And not there. Anyway, just a, just a thought. Okay? But I want you to get this in mind. Okay? Thousands of people gathering around to hear Jesus speak. And what were they gathering to hear? The exact words that we're going to hear today. It's incredible to see what sign or miracle or wonder he might perform next. Okay, do you have that visual in mind of those thousands of people stepping on one another, trying to get a good seat, trying to hear Jesus? And now I want you to imagine who was in the crowd. That crowd was made up of every kind of person you could possibly imagine. Now, we know the religious leaders were there because they were keeping a close eye on everything Jesus was saying and doing. But beyond that, we know his disciples were there, right? They were close to him. As a matter of fact, the first thing he does is speak to them. There were the curious, just people wondering what's going on. Uh, when they wandered around and found this group of people and had no idea, they were literally just curious. There were the haters. There were people heckling Jesus within the crowd. You know there were. They exist everywhere. I believe there were probably people there selling peanuts, popcorns, and the dumb little light-up thingies for the kids. I truly believe that. Every time there's a crowd gather, those people show up. Profiteers exist everywhere. Why wouldn't they have followed Jesus around and tried to make a buck, right? I, I mean, humans haven't changed at all. There were those that were wealthy, That had come, and I'm sure they had their own little section. They probably weren't the ones trampling on one another. But there were the poor there as well. There were sick people there. There were disabled people there. There were abandoned people there. I'm going to be really honest with you. There were people that showed up to Jesus flat, wasted. They were drunk out of their minds, coming to hear this, wondering what's going on. I guarantee it, those people were there. There were widows. There were orphans. There were people that likely didn't want to be there. And there were probably people that didn't mean to be there, but got stuck in the crowd and just had to stay because they couldn't get through. All of this, and the people were willing to put up with stepping on each other and hear the very same word of God that we get to hear this morning. Is that who we should be? Is that who should be here with us today? Should we welcome everyone in You see, this was as diverse a group as you could possibly imagine during that time frame in that portion of the world. There were even people there that Jesus knew were wanting to kill him as he was speaking. You can't get any more extreme or diverse than that type of crowd. The modern church, something we've got to remember, See, we love to think of Jesus as this Jesus, the Jesus that welcomed every single one in with every one of their problems, every one of their lifestyle choices, every one of their sins, and absolutely he did. That truth is as true today as it was then. However, for so many churches, especially in America, we like to leave out, as my good friend Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Yes, Jesus more than welcomes you and me in with all of our baggage, with all of our issues. In fact, he wouldn't have it any other way. He came to this earth so that we could come to him with all of our sin, with all of our guilt, with all of our shame, and give it to him. Let him take it from you. Let him begin to change you. You see, he loves everyone so much that he welcomes every single person in, but he loves us way too much to allow us to stay the same way we were when we got here. Take it a step further. He willingly died for you and for me. He died to be able to bring about that change in your life, that healing in your life, that forgiveness in your life. He died so you could start again. He died so that you could experience a new life in him. He took your old life and everything that went with it to the cross so you don't have to bear it any more. Guys, that isn't even the first sentence of the text today. I know, it's so exciting, is it not? Do you read scripture that way? Do you read a line and just dwell on it and wonder? What that was like, thousands of people gathering to trample and who was there and what they heard. Jesus, with this huge crowd around him, he, it says he stops and he turns just to the 12. Just to the 12, and he directly speaks to them. Now, if you were able to join us last week, then you know that last week he like straight up called out all over the religious leaders and the legal experts. He was not kind to them. He was truthful, but his words definitely were cutting. He, read, he, he, he led Everyone he listened, he shared with everyone exactly what these religious leaders were doing and these experts behind the scenes. He exposed them for who they were. But he did so, notice, to their face. He didn't talk about them behind their back. He, He did it right there at the dinner with the Pharisees. He let them have it. So really there weren't even that many outsiders present. He really was just talking to them. So he didn't go behind their back to share this information with the disciples. He first spoke directly to the parties involved, as we should, as believers. And then he turns and he speaks directly to the disciples about them. And he says, guys, you heard what I told them. I was serious. Now here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know about them. Jesus began first to speak to his disciples saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Jesus throws out that word, that word that we hear so often in our society, that word hypocrisy. Now probably if you've had many conversations with people that don't attend church or don't believe in God, then it's possible that you've heard that word from them and calling us a bunch of hypocrites well let me start with i wouldn't argue exactly i'll get to it in a minute we all are in some form or fashion i can't speak for you please don't think i just called you a hypocrite i can only speak for myself i know for a fact that i am but i also know that i'm a sinner and i'm saved by grace through faith in my savior jesus christ i mess up every day and I'm fully reliant upon his forgiveness to make me pure, to make me whole again. I cannot do that alone. Is anybody else with me in this boat? <laughs> okay. So we start there. So the next time someone has that conversation with you, right, you, get into, you can have a great, great discussion with them. Well, I don't really want to go to church. They're just full of a bunch of hypocrites. You can say, you know what? I'm just curious. Do you know what that word hypocrite means? Just ask them. Just ask them the question. We're not being uh, cantankerous. We're not argumentative. We just want to know. Curious. Do you know what that word means? And they'll probably say, well, and they'll make up a a definition. It might be true. Might not. Don't argue with them. That's not it. Then follow-up question. Do you know who the first person to ever, ever, ever use that word in relationship with religion or the church is? And they'll say, no. And you'll say, well, Jesus. Jesus is the one. That did that. See, before Jesus, the word hypocrite was just a Greek word. It was a simple Greek word. didn't have a whole lot of meaning to it. It meant actor or stage player. Literally, the literal translation means interpreter from underneath. In, in, the Greeks, in the Greek plays, they had big, huge masks that the actors would hide behind. No actresses. It was all males. And they would hide behind these big, giant masks. And so they told a story from behind a mask. That's where the word comes from. Ultimately, it became Pretending something that they were not in definition. So Jesus took this secular word that everybody knew. Everybody would seen a play. Everybody would seen some kind of drama. And he took it and he totally brought it into the church to expose those that appeared to be, on the outside, to be the most God-fearing, loving, pious, religious people ever. But Jesus clearly knew what was in their hearts, and so he exposed them from out behind the mask. You and I if we are followers of Jesus, if we have come to him, then we've repented of our sins, we've welcomed him into our life, then our heart should be full of the spirit of God. And there is no mask to hide behind. We are not proud of who we were, but we absolutely are unashamed of who we are and whose we are truthfully, we are not hypocrites because we are willing to admit our faults and our mistakes and fully rely upon Jesus to help us through those things. Now, when you have those conversations with that person, what do you think they'll say? You just opened yourself wide up to them. All their attacks that they thought they had have now just been kind of put out. Those flaming arrows aren't really that hot any longer. I bet you can have a great conversation with those people's. Jesus continues on verse 4 I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom to fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for just two pennies and yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. You said fear him and don't be afraid in the same sentences. How does that work? Let's dive into it. The fear of the religious leaders was a real thing during Jesus' time. They were very much people of authority. You've even seen that in Christendom since the time of Christ. You've seen religion in places gain such power that the people feared those religious leaders. Nothing different nothing different at all. What I want you to do is remind just a couple weeks ago, we were in Luke chapter 11, and Jesus described why the people were afraid in Luke chapter 11. They were afraid because they were enforcing all of these things upon the people, forcing full compliance, expecting perfection from them, and doing absolutely nothing to help them. So Jesus reminds them that, hey, those people that are in charge, they're the same ones that, that killed the prophets, all the prophets of old. Yeah, that, that, it was their hands, hands on, blood's on their hands. And oh, by the way, they're going to kill me here soon too, just so you know. The people have very good reason to be afraid of their own leaders. But then you take it a step further. They left, lived in constant fear of Rome, this Roman occupation, the government, the taxes. So Jesus' advice to fear not was not easy to do. This wasn't like, oh okay, sure, we'll just walk around and be completely free and not afraid. No, they were scared. They were scared around every corner. It makes sense. So what is Jesus actually doing? Well, he's trying to encourage them in the exact same way I contend that we need encouragement today. Everything around us will fail. It's promised to in the end, except for the things of God. You and I may not be in physical danger yet because of our faith, but we absolutely have brothers and sisters in Christ around this world who are. He will never fail us in either case scenario. God will never fail. Don't fear those in power. Let me repeat that. Don't fear those in power. As a matter of fact, we're supposed to respect and honor them. Whoever they are doesn't matter. Scripture tells us don't fear those in power. Will those in power make bad choices? I'll leave that for you to discuss amongst yourselves. Might those in power make it just ever so slightly more difficult for us to exist? I'll leave that for you to discuss. Could those in power actually take our very own lives? They could. They could. But don't fear them. Instead, fear the one who has authority to send you to hell. Now, I want to make a quick note here because there are those that claim to believe in Jesus that say there is no hell. Or insists that no one, because of their life choices, will be, to, be going to that place called hell. Um, this is one of many times where Jesus insists that there is a hell. And I believe him. I believe he tells us the truth. And so this fear that he's speaking of could certainly be the sense of fear we're all thinking of, of going to a place where there is no God, here's the thing, I don't think we can imagine, I don't think we have the capacity as humans to imagine the depravity, the destruction, the torment of complete and total separation from God for all eternity. I really don't think we have the ability to do that. Just like I don't think we have the full ability to grasp the infinitely indescribable nature of heaven. Both of those things are so far on either end that in this humanity, we have moments that are really bad and really good, but neither could ever be compared with those two things. So to fear a sentence, the hell, yes, one which we all rightfully deserve, I get it. I get it. I get it completely. But that fear should go beyond just the human emotion fear. This fear is certainly legit. But that fear, that all-filled wonder reverence toward the almighty God, a slightly different Meaning for that word fear. But here's what's really cool Jesus doesn't leave his listeners in fear. If you listen to that whole passage, he very easily could have said, Hey everyone, don't fear them, fear the one that can send you to hell. Goodbye, I'm out. Be afraid. Be very, very afraid. And just walked off the stage. He could have done that. He could have. But instantly, in the same breath, he changes and says, Don't fear. He knows you, he knows me, he loves you, he loves me, he cares for the sparrows. Jesus threw the sparrows in there and their costs telling us, sparrows mean nothing to humans. There's no value there whatsoever and yet God knows them and cares for them. And then he goes on to say, he knows the numbers of hair on your head. Now I realize for some of us that's a little easier task than for others, okay, we'll get to that, you know, at some point, but God cares for us so much. Every one of his creations he cares for. So don't be afraid. You and I can choose to have a relationship with God. And if we do, there is no reason to fear him with that kind of human fear. And he continues on, verse 8. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledged me before others, <clears throat> the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. Now, this verse, these words have inspired Christians, allowed Christians to stand bold throughout the face of anything you can imagine that's been done to believers since the time of Christ, and allowed them to stand there boldly and not deny his name. We, even in our comfortable culture, have to do the same. We have to acknowledge our Jesus in public. We must use our words and our actions to show and tell all of those around us about the wonderful love, grace, hope, mercy, forgiveness that our Savior offers them to. Jesus is telling us that we can't deny Him by our words or our lifestyle, or He will, in fact, disown us. Thankfully, though, again, he, he says it, it's amazing the way Jesus does these things, because again, he could have just stopped right there. "Hey, you better not deny me, or I'm going to deny you? I'm out." He doesn't do that. Verse 10, "And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. If we ask, it's right there. Even when we fall short and we do deny Him by our actions or our words, we have opportunity for forgiveness. But then he continues, anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, you've heard that passage before. A lot of you have. The unforgivable sin, as it's called. People make a very big deal of this verse. I want to explain it to you very simply. And so if this is a conversation you've ever had with someone and you just kind of got befuddled, listen carefully. If you need it, I'll email it to you so you have it. It's a very easy way to help explain this to someone. It is not that God cannot forgive something. God could forgive anything. He absolutely would forgive them if they repented. And ask for forgiveness. But here's the problem. If you are currently blaspheming the Holy Spirit, then that speaks evil of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one that is attempting to convict you of your sins. When you reject the Holy Spirit, you're ignoring the Spirit's efforts to convince you to turn to Jesus. Your heart is hard. Your attitude is hardened. You are closed off to those inner workings of God in your life. Thus, there can be no forgiveness because you're not willing to accept it. I hope that makes sense to you. It's very simple. Here's the thing. You need to be able to describe that to someone because it is a question that a lot of skeptics will throw out there as a way to try to trip you up, try to confuse you, try to create doubt in your mind. There's no doubt here. Jesus' words are not confusing at all. It has to do with the individual making those statements, those beliefs Verse 11, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, don't worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what to say. This is one of the things that's so beautiful about Luke, because unlike Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke writes a part two. He puts this story of Jesus together in such a way, and then he writes the book of Acts. And we see these teachings and these prophecies, literally like this, of Jesus come true in real time. In Acts, later on chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested, and they're taken before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. In chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called into account today because an act of kindness shown to a man that was lame, and we are being asked why or how he was healed, then know this. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone in this. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Peter and John didn't know what to say. They didn't have a script read out, they didn't have a Bible to read from. They were filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit took over, and everyone listening was amazed. There's no way these common uneducated men could come up with these things. Now again, I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me. But if we allow God through his spirit to inspire our thoughts and to inspire our words as we speak on his behalf, as you comfort someone who's mourning, as you share with Jesus whoever will listen to you, as you share your story with someone else, he will fill your story with what they need to hear. Don't worry about what to say. God's got this. God's got this. But Jesus, master teacher, not done yet, wants to keep educating, doesn't stop there, continues to reinforce this same teaching. No fear, no worry. He keeps right on going. And he tells them a story that would have instantly perked everybody up because it involved money. Ah, yes, anytime, money, yes. What Jesus, you have something to talk about money. He takes a real life issue that the people could grasp, and he turns it into, don't fear, don't worry. Even today, the same story makes sense. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.'" Now, that seems like a very odd thing to interject, I agree, What you must know is that rabbis, which Jesus was considered, often settled family disputes like this. So people would bring those kinds of matters to people like Jesus and try to get them to get a solution. Jesus replies, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He knows the heart of the person asking the question, yet you just want yours. You don't think your brother's being fair, cheating you. You're being greedy. I get it. So he told him a parable, verse 16. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. Then I will store up my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have made plenty, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat drink, and be merry. Now, the crowd listening might have heard this story. They had two thoughts. One, yes, that would be the life, wouldn't it, man? That would be awesome. Sign me up. And at the same time, simultaneously thinking, yeah, that'll never happen. Like, that could never be me because of their existence. I could get rich. I could retire early. I could enjoy life. Everyone listening to this story had the same thoughts going through their minds, and then Jesus throws them a really big curveball. But God said to him, you fool this very night your life will be demanded from you then who will get what you have prepared for yourself this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God let's address that last verse first God is not condemning the rich people love to say that Jesus did that he did not He said very clearly here, this is only for those that only store up things for themselves and aren't rich toward God. If you're rich toward God, he might bless you financially, and that's fine. And he will continue to if you continue to be rich toward God, because you're helping to build his kingdom. You're helping to serve those in need, provide for those in need. God bless you for doing that, and he will. But this man, this man, he was obviously good at what he does. In the money issue, it's neutral. It means nothing. Money is a man-made invention after the fall. It can be used for good and absolutely can be used for evil. Money itself is neither. That famous, famous passage that's always taken out of text says that the love of money is the root of all evil. That's very different. If you love money more than anything, it's going to be your demise, especially if it's more than God. It will be the end of your marriage if you love money more than your marriage. It'll be the end of your friendships if you value money more than your friendships. Money will destroy everything if you allow it to, just like anything else you put before God in your life. So greed. Greed was this man's downfall. He had received a blessing from God. It was an incredible one. And the man asked the right question. Jesus is such a good storyteller. He asked the right question. Man, this is awesome. What do I do? What should I do? Here's the thing. God, the people listening know what to do. God's word had already told them that. The prophets during their era, John the Baptist spoke to this all the time. Give to the poor. Help those in need out of the abundance of your blessings. The theme of Christianity since the very beginning. But you see, the man didn't inquire of God for an answer. He asked the question, but he rested on his own wisdom to come up with it which is the reason God gave the response, he said. When Jesus tells this story, he allows the man to refer to himself in the first person 11 times, 11 times. In this very short story, he talks about himself. I wonder who he was focused on. Hmm. Life isn't about taking it easy. It's about serving those in need. And God has so richly blessed each and every one of us with incredible riches and gifts and skills and talents. For some, it is financial. We don't want to deny that. We understand that, and it is incredible. We can and should richly bless those within the family of God with what God has given us, with the skills, with the talents, and it is within the family of God, the church, that that should begin. It's who we are to be. It's how the pre-believing world, I'll only by mistake ever say the word non- or unbeliever, In my mind and heart, every person you come in contact with is a pre-believer because the Spirit could change them at any moment. And it might be up to you or me to share that good news with them that changes them. Never look at people in that negative light. Pre is so much more exciting sounding. Pre-believing world, this is what they're going to see. And they're going to see this church, this body. This is why we're meeting over the summer to talk to you. They're going to see this body of Christ doing something for this community. And they're going to sit back and say, why? Why are they doing that? Why would they offer that? Why are they trying to help us with their needs? And we're going to say, well, we'll tell you why. (laughs) It's the love of Jesus. It's the skills, it's the gifts, it's the talents that he's given us. It's our love for one another. And then we can take these gifts and these skills and these abilities, and we can take them and serve out in the community as we should. Reach out with the love of God. This should be the driving force behind all that we do as a body of Christ. This man, he chose to hoard his good gifts. They would make a TV show about him today, probably. The penalty, severe, very severe. It's beyond you just can't take it with you, okay? Here's the point. It, it's more important that, that you share these blessings with other people. This guy just didn't get that, and Jesus wanted to share. And so he, he gets through another, what would be a negative story. Oh my goodness, he had this huge blessing, and then just God takes his life. end again, Jesus walks off the stage. Fear, that's fear. But Jesus doesn't walk off the stage. He says, fear, but don't fear. Final short teaching, same gathering, same group of people. Jesus continues to pound home this point. Do not worry. Remember, if you're studying God's word and you ever start seeing this theme repeated over and over and over and over again, guess what that is? It's important. He knows us. If he just tells us once, we don't remember to take out the trash or pick up our clothes. Am I talking to the students in the room or am I talking to the adults? Anyway, um, I, I see some looks there, right? We forget if we're not constantly reminded. And so Jesus tells us this is important. This is important. We're all going through this. This is happening in the world today. What is happening in the world today, be reminded of this truth. Verse 22, Jesus said, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about what you eat. Do not worry about your body or what you're aware or dare I throw in how much gas costs. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it for you are more, your life is more than food, your body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't reap, they don't sow, they don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? And since you can't do this very simple little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Did you hear that truth at the end? Anybody ever fell victim to that? Who by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Now, In modern medicine, this wouldn't have been something they knew in Jesus' time. In modern medicine, we know not only does worry not add to your life, it actually takes away from your life. It leads to diseases, illness, heart attacks, high cholesterol, cancer, you name it. Fear, worry, anxiety lead to those things. It will cause physical problems and shorten your life. So Jesus' words are more than than true here. Verse 27, consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labor, they don't spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon, the great King Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things. Has that changed? And your father knows that you need them, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you. And he's not done yet. Don't be afraid. Do you think these folks he was talking to had an issue with fear? Do you think the world around us has an issue with fear right now? Don't be afraid, little flock. Your Father has pleased is, has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. And treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes in near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We see this world all around us. We see the pagan world chasing these things of the world. And we are called... To be different. We are called to look at the world around us and see and see how God provides for and he takes care of every minute detail, including our very own lives. And then we consider how much more He values and cares for us. We are to set our heart on Him. We are to seek His kingdom. He alone can provide what we need. You see, God is calling us out here, He's asking us to to do a little heart check. Just like he did last week with the Pharisees and legal experts where he just threw down. He's doing the same thing with us, but in a much kinder, gentler way. A little self-evaluation. Are we investing in the things of this world or are we investing in things that are eternal? When people will look at us so weird when we invest in these eternal things. Now, I would love to be able to look you in the eye. And say, okay, if if you get these priorities right in your life, this is exactly how God will move and work and provide. Because it is difficult when you look at the budget and you see the cost of this, that, or the other, and you're like, we just don't have enough to do this or this or this. And it begins to get into the basic needs of life. How do you put your faith and hope and trust in God? All I can tell you is exactly what he told that first man: be generous with what you have, be responsible to God with what you have. And he miraculously provides in those crazy, weird ways. I can't tell how it happened in your life. I can't tell you. But I promise you, there are people in this room that can tell you how it happened in theirs. When they were down and out, when they were at the rock bottom, when they were there, and the only thing they that they refused to do was stop offering to God. And we're not just talking about finances and money. We're talking about time, energy, resources, skills, and ability that we can offer to God in exchange for finances if we don't have them being responsible with what God has given us, treasuring those things God has given us, freely giving of the things God has given us, knowing and believing that he will provide for our needs. And every person I've ever talked to that's went through that phase in life, they just look at it like, I have no idea how I made it. But it was always, there was always just enough. God always just provided just enough. He just provided just enough. I have no clue. And now look where I'm at, and I'm continuing to be faithful with what God has given me, and I consider that an abundance compared to what what, what I did have. And look how God is continuing to be faithful to me through this. That is the way God works in our lives. Please don't just apply that to money. Everybody loves to apply it to money, and it may be true with money, but it applies to the gifts and the skills and the abilities that God has given you in your life as well. The Lord will give you, when you're speaking with people, the words to say. That example of, of Peter and John from Acts 4, 8, it's incredible. Those uneducated hicks from the, from the north were speaking these incredible words, and the people listening were convicted. They were convicted by what they saw. He will speak through you as well. I don't know what's coming next to you in this world we live in. I ain't got a clue. I'm not going to try to figure it out. don't care. I know Jesus is coming sometime that's it. That's the only thing I know for certain, right? That's it. So anything else between now and then, eh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Probably nothing you or I could do about it. So do not fear. Let's gather together. Let's worship. Let's go from here and let's reach the fearing world around us with the peace that we have. Father God, this gift that you've given us, this gift of peace, this gift of hope, of forgiveness, it's incredible. And now, maybe, maybe more than ever in our lifetimes for sure. We have a world around us that is afraid. They're afraid of disease. They're afraid of finances. They're, they're afraid of the economy. They're afraid of uh, war. They're, I mean, you name it, they're afraid of natural disasters. I mean, there's so many reasons to be afraid. We are no different than this first century in, in Jerusalem in Israel where they are fearing their very own religious leaders. They're fearing the government leaders. They're fearing a drought. They're fearing lack of food. The same things, the exact same things two 2,000 years later, we're no different. And what the best part about us not being any different is the reality that you are no different. And the same promises you made to first century believers in Jerusalem are the same promises that you absolutely absolutely will be faithful to today in 2022. And if there's anyone in this room that has not claimed those promises for themselves and the fear and the worry of this world has gotten to them, then I pray today is the day the spirit moves. We asked earlier, not just for your spirit to be present, he's present, he's here. We've asked for your spirit to move in those lives of those people that have not accepted you yet. And and we beg them to come, to come today. And for the first time, claim the name of your son as their savior. Father, if we're believers and we have just been drugged down by the world, Satan has gotten to us. He's deceived us. He's he's got us looking at the financials and we are getting worried about things. Father, maybe there are some irresponsible things we've done in life. You will forgive us for those. You will help us take care of those. We can make phone calls to people, to to folks we owe money to, and we we pray about those things. Father, you will make a way where there seems to be no way. If we're faithfully following you, we all have made mistakes, but we need to come forward. We need to repent of those mistakes. Bring those to you. Give them to you. Quit trying to fix them on our own and allow that fear to go away. Maybe maybe everything that's happening the chaos in this world is just too much. And we have kids and we have grandkids and we have families and we're deeply concerned and worried for them. Father, let us trust in these promises from that perspective today as well. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not worry. But be faithful. Be faithful with what you've given us. Be truthful. Be loving, kind to those around us. Father, your word is so powerful. Let it dig in to each of us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.